Read with me Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I am very, very interested in psychology, and I'm very interested in personalities. There's a nice website that you can go on called 16personalities.com, and you can, you can find your personality. And it's not a way to limit you and say this is what you can only be, but it helps you understand yourself. Knowing your personality helps you understand your dispositions, your tendencies, your patterns of thought, um, your natural inclinations. It tells you where you draw energy from and where you lose energy from. I want to submit to you today that God has a personality. Um, certainly not reducible to the human traits that you see in a personality test. But nevertheless, God does have a mode of operation certain dispositions and patterns that he acts with. And I think if we understand God's personality, that is actually going to be, enable us to perceive God as he acts in our life, and we can begin to interact with him by experience if we know his dispositions and his ways. So what I'm talking about is knowing God today and his personality. Now, this passage recounts the birth of Jesus Christ, or better, it, it recounts God's entrance into human history. But it does that through the experience of Joseph, the experience of Joseph. Joseph found his future bride pregnant before they were married, before they had any sexual relations. And Joseph, who is pondering the decision to divorce her, to put her away and call off the marriage, is then informed by an angel of Mary's miraculous pregnancy. God is going to use, as you see in this passage, Joseph in a unique place in redemptive history. Not to be Christ's biological father, because he was not Christ's biological father. Nevertheless, 
it seems that God is using Joseph to raise the Son of God from infancy and into an adult. Now, in the Old Testament scriptures, notice that when God calls somebody to a unique vocation in redemptive history, he does so by putting them in kind of extraordinary and uncomfortable circumstances. I think this is a pattern of God's activity throughout history. He usually calls a man and withholds the full picture from him while telling, the, while telling that man to have faith and move forward on the basis of his word without giving the full picture. Look at Noah. God says, build an ark in the desert because it's going to flood. The whole earth is going to flood. And the ark took, by some estimates, 120 years, by some 55 years. That's a long time to not see the word of God to come to fruition. But Noah was told to obey. Abraham was told to sacrifice his son, his only son, the one you love. Without any explanation, without the full picture. And he was told to obey. Moses. God revealed himself to Moses through a burning bush. Speaking. And he told Moses to go to the most powerful man on earth and require that his people be let go and that God would sustain him by miraculous intervention. So all of these men are, if you notice, put in a place of existential angst and confusion. It seems to be a pattern that when God places a man in a unique circumstance in redemptive history, he requires of those men faith when it is particularly difficult to understand what is going on or even believe God's word. So it's no surprise here when the Son of God enters into human history. He requires this kind of faith from the man who would raise him. This passage is, is much more human than John 1. It doesn't start with the pristine doctrine, the clear air of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It doesn't, talk, it doesn't speak with that, that pristine doctrinal clarity. It doesn't start with doctrine. It starts with a dilemma. Before they came together, Mary was found to be with child. Joseph and Mary were betrothed at this time, and usually betrothal lasted one year. And the woman would prepare with her family for this betrothal, for this marriage, and the man would prepare usually by building an extension on his father's house and paying a dowry. Um, but the text here in verse 18 tells us what, what Joseph does not know. She is with child from the Holy Spirit. So no doubt, Joseph is thrown into confusion and trouble of soul as his wife or his future wife is found to be pregnant. Now this, uh, the internal angst 
and confusion is not recorded in Matthew, but certainly we can, we can assume that there was, there was confusion, bitterness, anger, sorrow over this. But what is recorded, even though it doesn't record his confusion, it does record his compassion. It says in verse 19 that Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. According to Mosaic law, adultery was punishable by death. Now, at this time, that, that, was, um, that was kind of pulled back, but nevertheless, the woman was put to shame if she committed adultery, even if it was during betrothal. And so Joseph could have acted he was certainly in his rights to publicly divorce her, absolve himself of any wrongdoing, and put her to shame. But he chose to show compassion, and Scripture's determination of Joseph on this matter was he was a just man. As he considered these things, as he considered these things, an angel from heaven appears to Joseph in a dream. And verse 20, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, the difficulty of faith for Joseph, I think, is in these facts. Number one, it's the manner in which this revelation was given. It was not given to Joseph when he was lucid and awake. It was given to Joseph in a dream. Second of all, it was not given by a person, but by an angel. And angels very often appear in human form, but very often appear in, in strange and bizarre forms. We're not sure um, what it was in this case, but certainly would have added awe and perhaps confusion to Joseph. Thirdly, the message itself is hard to believe, that his virgin fiance has been impregnated by the Holy Spirit. That's a hard pill to swallow. So surely, surely God have been, could have been more clear if he wanted to. Surely God could have clearly and, and audibly spoken to Joseph and given him clear, beyond a shadow of a doubt, communication. God could have provided witnesses to Joseph's, to the communication by Joseph. Say, and the witnesses could have said, yes, I heard that too. That was a voice from heaven telling you that your wife is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. But he didn't do that. Surely God could have been given a clearer manner to reveal this truth to Joseph. He could have done it when he was awake, perhaps. But Joseph was not given this clarity. Rather, God chose the dream. God chose a virgin conception, and he tells him to believe. 
this is this is so consistent with this personality trait I see in God that God's mode of operation is to give his word while allowing enough room for doubt. This seems to be the consistent pattern of operation. Not all the time, but this is a pattern of operation from which he does not deviate very often. And for Joseph, it took trust in this spoken word to him through the angel in a dream. And only later, and only upon seeing Jesus as he grew up to be an, an unusual and unique boy and eventually man, would Joseph receive any kind of verification that this truly was the Son of God conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of his virgin bride. In other words, what I'm saying is faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is the kind of faith, this is the nature of faith that God requires from us. And that is the majority, brothers and sisters, of the Christian life. The confidence of things not seen or clearly and def definitively revealed to you. God has given his word. He has given you sufficient lack of clarity so that you could doubt, but then you are told to obey. That is the nature of Christian faith. And we walk not by sight, but by faith. Now, my burden is certainly not to inspire you to believe that every dream you have is of divine origin. So please don't misunderstand me. Um, I want you to notice that the dream was not just out of nowhere, like this was never going to happen. This was just something God decided to do. This was completely new revelation. Actually, this is, this is revelation given long ago. Look in verse 23, 22 and 23. This whole, this whole circumstance was prophesied. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So this is, this is, this long ago is something that was going to happen. So if you have a dream or a supposed revelation from God, it must, if you will have any confidence in it, and if you are going to move forward as a Christian, it must correspond to the word of God. God would never contradict himself. Also, uh, Ryan, Ryan has a good saying when he's trying to make a decision, right, Ryan? He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. So did, what, what does this decision do? What kind, of, what kind of seeds does this sow in my heart? Am I getting you right, Ryan? What does this sow in my heart? Does this, do I, am I conflicted about this or does the peace of Christ rule in my heart about this decision? And you go through that kind of decision-making prayerfully 
according to the word of God, by asking your brothers and sisters for counsel, and you move forward in faith. Now, God requires, so this is the person, I don't know what we would call this personality trait. Um, leaving th this tendency to leave enough room for doubt while requiring faith and obedience in his word. But I'm, I don't mean to say that God is indifferent or calculate or cold about this. Because I think there's a second personality trait here in the identity of Mary's baby, Jesus. 20, verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for she, he will save his people from their sins. The word Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. And Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. Jesus is the salvation from God. And he will save people. He, his conquest, though, is not over, going to be over the Roman army like the Jews wanted and expected. It's not going to be a physical conquest with temporal benefits. It's going to be a spiritual conquest with eternal benefits. He will save their people from their sins. And the way that Christ did this is by living the life we should have lived in our stead, earning the favor of God as a man, dying at the hands of the Father, bearing the wrath of God for us, and rising again, and then distributing his life to us. Now, that is what Jesus came to do. He will save his people from their sins. Now, what, can, what, does, what could a king do with sins, with a transgression against him? Now, sin is sin. So what is sin? First of all, sin is living in either conscience, conscious rebellion to or just indifference to God. It's either indifference or conscious rebellion to God. And God is fully within his right to condemn you and, and pour his wrath on us for our sins. But you see in this passage, he elects to save people from their sins. He, acts, he elects not to make use of this right of his. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So I see another personality trait here and I think we see the divine impulse or the divine reflex or his gut reaction is actually not to punish the sinner immediately, though he is well, well within his right to do so. Rather, the divine impulse is to extend a hand of reconciliation first. Like this is, God here is in this, or Joseph is in the same position as God in this passage. He was fully within his right to take his bride and put her to shame and perhaps publicly execute her. The same thing as God was. 
she was an unfaithful life, wife all throughout the prophets, right? And God was well within his right to divorce her, put her to shame, and see her dead. But that is not the personality of the God of scriptures. So, turn with me really briefly, just kind of to back up what I'm saying, to Psalm 103. I think Psalm 103 is, it tells you about the character of God. It's a passage worth memorizing. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives your iniquity, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness in justice for all who are oppressed. Now get this. He made his ways known to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So the divine personality is to not make use of his right to utterly annihilate those who sit on his lap and slap him in the face, but to extend a hand of reconciliation. So if you are here today and you are hearing this for the first time, know that your sin has made a breach between you and your God. And there is one way of forgiveness. It is through, through the extension, through the which I'm going to get to in a minute, but it is in Jesus Christ who has come to save you from your sins. And by trusting and believing on his name, you will be saved. And there is salvation in no one else. So if you're a sinner, know that God wants to forgive you. It is his impulse. It is his gut reaction to want to forgive you. If you are a saint who is also a sinner, know that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And you could always run to him. Are we good on that? Any questions? Okay.
Now, that being firmly in place, I, I also want to say what he wants to do is much different than what he will do if you do not repent. The scriptures tell us about this divine personality, this impulse to forgive, but it also tells us to not presume upon this personality. Don't presume upon God's kindness and mercy. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 2, 4, and 5. He chastens the Jewish audience to whom he was writing, and he says, Do you presume upon the riches and his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So the divine impulse is to forgive. But there will come a day where God will do what he has withheld to do thus far. And sin only stores up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. So do not, as you hear this message, presume upon God's kindness. Don't delay repentance until later in life. You're not too young to bring yourself into alignment with Christ. Don't leave here thinking that you are without repentance and faith in Christ clear from the wrath of God. You are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath if you presume upon God's kindness and repentance. You must repent and believe in Jesus Christ and follow him as a disciple. So, we have this personality trait that, that God will punish sin, but his impulse is not to punish but to provide a way, provide a way of escape before the punishment. Third, and this is not really a personality trait, this is just a statement about God's personality. Where the personality of God is most clearly seen is in Christ. That's where his personality, that is his personality, why, it's him. God's personality is most clearly seen in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament passage to which Matthew is referring in verse 23 is Isaiah 7.14. speaks about a young woman bearing a son whose birth indicates the presence of God to Israel and of God's protection from the surrounding armies. There is great debate about who this son is. And, and what kind of prophecy this is. It seems to me, uh, my reading, that the son was a son who was born during the time of Isaiah. And the, the reason I think that is because in Isaiah 17, it speaks of the son before this son knows how to even distinguish good from evil, your enemies will be gone. So that shows you, it shows me at least, uh, what kind of fulfillment Matthew 
has in mind. And this is, this is also consistent with Matthew, and I think consistent, or we see this in multiple places in New Testament prophecy. There is a predictive fulfillment, which says in the Old Testament, this is going to happen, and then way over here, nothing happens until it happens. That's predictive fulfillment. What I think Matthew has in mind, and not to throw some kind of word at you, but it's called a typological fulfillment. And typology is the study, the theological study of how um, persons and institutions and events in the Old Testament actually prefigure and anticipate greater realities of the new covenant. So all this took place to fulfill. Think of that word as filling up. He fills up the phrase God with us, because there could no, be no more God with us than God actually coming down and being with us. So think of fulfill as Jesus filling up that Old Testament passage with greater significance, with ultimate significance. He himself is God in the flesh, so he fills up the ultimate meaning of those words. That being said, this is, this is a, a Christmas passage, right? This is what we read at, at Christmas time. And so I'm going to tell you something you already know, but Christmas time, clearly, brothers and sisters, we know this intellectually, but I, I, let our passions, our affections, and our hearts really embrace this and maybe expand our view. Christmas time is not to pontificate about the sweetness of a baby being born. It is, not, it is not a quaint little picture about a nativity. If you have a nativity, I'm not, no condemnation here. I'm just, <laughs> Christmas is a proposition. It is a divine statement that the, the personality of God has entered into human history and made himself known, not through, but in Jesus Christ. That is Christmas. That is, that is what God's people are to embrace and understand. It is that God has entered, not through, but as a man, into human history. So do you want to know what, what God is like? I've said this before to you. But do you want to know what God is like? What is he really like? You look at scripture and look at these patterns of his activity and that will help you interact with him. But ultimately, you look at Jesus Christ. That's what God is like. I love this analogy. I think it's from, I heard this from Paul Washer, but he said, any human, if an alien came down from outer space and said, Stefan, what are you like? Stefan could explain what humans are like by pointing to other humans and saying, well, I'm, I'm like Mark. You know, I'm like Khalil. I'm like him. That's what, that's what we're like. We're like each other. We're like that. 
when it comes to God revealing himself, there is nothing on earth. There is no angel that could be pointed to wherein God could say, I am like that. So what does he do? He comes down, reveals himself, lives according to the divine order as a man and says, I'm like him. That's what I'm like. Jesus is God with us. Or here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God speaks his word in the darkness and it was, there was light. That same God, the Father, who creates through his word has actually shown in the Christian heart through the faith of Je face of Jesus Christ, who is the word of God in us. Here's how Jesus puts it. When asked by Philip, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough. What does Jesus say? Have I been with you so long and you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You follow me on this? Jesus is. He is the, uh, we go to Hebrews 1, 2. He is the full expression of the divine personality. Indeed, he is the divine person. There is the meaning of Christmas time. So, what do we celebrate as Christmas? We remember and praise God that the divine personality has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And for those who have received Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he offers, he requires us now to walk by faith, not by sight. For this is his mode of operation for Christians. When he calls men to do amazing things or to believe in his son, he says walk by faith by faith and not by sight. So this, is, this Christmas time is a Christmas time we remember divine person entering into human history and the faith that is required by those who call upon his name. Let's close in a word.